baseball fans. It's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. The Atlanta Braves have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. Hello again and welcome to this episode of From the Diamond. I'm Grant McCauley and once again, time to talk about the Braves and Major League Baseball as we continue on in 2020. We start a whole new week and our countdown to pitchers and catchers continues to dwindle down to just over a month until Braves pitchers and catchers and of course the other 29 teams will be reporting to spring training and then exhibition baseball will get started about 10 days after that. So we've got baseball right around the corner but we still got plenty of hot stove to talk about, and we're going to do that on this show as Bill Rowland joins me, and we go through our starting nine of the biggest stories across Major League Baseball and, of course, those that have to do with the Braves. We'll talk about it all, and we'll do it right here on From the Diamond. As always, I want to let you know you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Just search for From the Diamond. Leave those ratings and reviews. I really appreciate those. And be sure to connect on social media. Twitter, at From the Diamond underscore is where you can find the show. I am at Grant McCauley, G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y. On Instagram, at From the Diamond with no underscore. And I'm at Grant McCauley there as well. And you can find everything else, including every episode of this show and the Braves positional preview series I'm going to be dropping this weekend. I'll begin with a look at the Braves bullpen. You can find it this weekend at FromTheDiamond.com. So with that out of the way, let's jump into some Braves news. There was a little bit of that this week, but not necessarily on the front we were looking for, as we are still waiting on Josh Donaldson to make a decision on what club he's going to sign with for how long and for how much money. We really don't know. I heard some rumbling that that might be happening this week, but it was more of a, I'm going to have to see it to believe it because this process continues to drag out, and I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, No team, including the Braves, seems to have reached the number that Josh Donaldson was looking for. So not just the years, but the money, of course, is going to be the driving factor in where Josh Donaldson signs for the next four seasons. He wanted four years. It sounds like he's gotten that from not only the Braves, but also the Nationals have made an offer. The Twins have made an offer, though reportedly those two clubs were a little bit pessimistic about their chances of signing Donaldson, believing that he's going to end up back in Atlanta. But the $110 million asking price, according to Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic, no team has gotten close to that just yet. And if Josh Donaldson is believing that one of the other clubs will be willing to give him that kind of money and he doesn't feel like he can get it from the Braves, then if he knows Atlanta's kind of in his back pocket, so to speak, why not wait to see if one of those other clubs not necessarily gets desperate but does decide in the 11th hour, hey, we're going to up the bid and we're going to look to win this by giving him the dollar amount that he wants. Can't blame him for doing so. Again, he's got a lot of leverage from being a free agent coming off a good year, something he did not have a year ago. And as I mentioned before, including last week on the show, if you're Josh Donaldson at 34 years old, this is your last big contract most likely. So cash in for all you can get because you don't have an unlimited amount of years left to play. And time is, of course, undefeated. So we'll see what Josh Donaldson decides. Braves, one of the three clubs reported to give him a four-year offer. Still not sure that any club has gotten close to that $110 million asking price or if any club will. So we'll continue to monitor that as we move forward. Braves fans may also be aware that SunTrust Park is soon to have a new name. In fact, that will happen on Tuesday of the coming week. Recording this, of course, on a Friday. So in the next few days, we'll have a new name for SunTrust Park. Not sure what direction they're going to go. To me, it would be lovely to have some kind of opportunity to perhaps name the field so that it's not just the corporate banking name, which I'm sure is going to remain in place. Of course, BB&T and SunTrust, they had a merger. They are now Truist Bank, which doesn't exactly roll off the tongue as far as names of ballparks. But with corporate naming rights being what they are and the amount of money in terms of $10 million a year that goes into that, I'm sure there's going to be a banking name involved with this. But Perhaps a Hank Aaron field or something that maybe down the line could be added. That would be a wonderful way to kind of bring back the history and the heritage of the Braves brand 
and have that be a more active part of the ballpark name. But again, that's just one person's particular preference, and I just happen to have a microphone, so thought I'd throw that out there. SunTrust Park signs have come down, and we will find out what the new name is before too long. In fact, it will happen next week. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, I am working on my Braves positional preview series. I'm going to start that out with a look at the Atlanta bullpen, and you can expect that to drop this weekend over at FromTheDiamond.com. So we'll be able to talk about that a little bit each week leading up to Braves pitchers and catchers reporting. And it is just over one month from today. It'll be February the 12th that Braves pitchers and catchers report to the brand new facility, Cool Today Park in Northport, Florida. So let's take a look at what else is happening across Major League Baseball in the week that was. And we'll do that, of course, in our starting nine. And to help me out with that, Bill Rowland joins the show once again. Uh, Bill, it's always an interesting week when we're talking about hot stove topics. This one had some more off-the-wall topics, but still some interesting baseball stuff going on. And uh, unfortunately, we still got to play the waiting game for pitchers and catchers to report and for a few more of these uh, free agent players to figure out where they're going to be suiting up in 2020. Yeah, but it's getting closer. You know, now we're down to, what, four or five weeks away from first reports there in Florida and Arizona. So, you know, it just keeps chugging along, and uh, eventually we will get there, and and things will be all well with the world. Yes, they will. I will be looking forward to seeing baseball players on baseball diamonds doing baseball things. That will be happening before we know it. Unfortunately, we've got to do some of the more litigious items, and I figured – Why not just lead off our list this week, our starting nine, with a story that's kind of like taking your medicine before you get to really have the fun that comes after. Major League Baseball is going to be investigating the Boston Red Sox for stealing signs during their World Series championship season of 2018. Bill, I'm not foolish enough to think that Boston and, of course, the Houston Astros, who were under fire already for this, are the only clubs that are guilty of using technology to steal signs. But back-to-back World Championship seasons is not a great look for the sport if you're trying to marginalize the overall effects of just how rampant this sign-stealing might be and how much technology was used to do it. Yeah, a terrible look for Major League Baseball. But more specifically, it's a terrible look for Alex Cora Yeah, because he was a bench coach with Houston and then, of course, in 2017 and then, of course, led the Red Sox to the World Series in 2018. You have to figure that he brought... Maybe not the idea of sign stealing because, of course, the Red Sox, I got busted for using the Apple Watches um, prior to that. But you have to figure he at least helped fine-tune the cheating that the Red Sox were doing from their video room in 2018. So, to me, Major League Baseball has to step on top of this and squash it. And it can't be just like a $500,000 fine to the organization. And maybe you suspend hinge for a couple weeks and core for a couple weeks. I think they've really, really have to step in and, and discourage this at all levels. And the only way to do that is to take away draft picks. And I tell you what, the Red Sox probably more than Houston will be terrified of that because they need to rebuild their minor league system. Dave Dombrowski came in and traded away a lot of prospects to get them that 2018 World Series. Their minor leagues are dereth of talent. So they're going to be scared to death that MLB is going to come in and take away some sort of competitive um, advantage that they may have, whether it's draft picks or international slots or whatever it is. But even as a Red Sox fan, Mm -hmm. I'm in favor of them doing this because this type of stuff – we talked about it before with them banging on the trash can in Houston in yeah. 2017 everything. It has to come to an end, and the only way to do it is to step on these guys and squash it now. Yeah, I agree with that, and I think there's going to be some pretty heavy discipline that's going to come down. From what it sounded like, and I believe it was Jeff Passan of ESPN that was the first to really report this, it's not so much that there's a lot of players in the crosshairs for this, but people like Acora, uh, like any of the executives that might have been involved in this, any other coaches, of course, as well, all the people that were kind of putting this together and implementing this program of using technology to steal signs, those are the folks that are going to be hit the hardest. And I would imagine that it would go up in terms of anyone who had knowledge of this and was in a position to deal with it internally from a team leadership standpoint. So basically any big executive that may not have been hands-on with it, but was very aware of what was going on. Those are all going to be people that major league baseball is going to come down on. And I would imagine that suspensions Uh, perhaps that lifetime ban that's been thrown around as a possible outcome for some of the higher level executives. It could become a reality for some of these guys that uh, what they did in order to get to the highest level and win a World Series may not have quite been worth it when it comes out in the wash because I think there's going to be a lot 
of people that are going to be left with their jaws on the floor when Major League Baseball is done levying out the discipline for this because the sport is kind of backed into a corner. They have to send a message with this. You cannot enable this. You cannot allow it to continue. You cannot slow play it. They need to get to the core of this and send a message that tells people, look, we're well aware of what's going on and we're not going to tolerate it because allowing it to continue, I think, is just going to do more and more and more damage to the sport because this was not the spirit of why replay and this technology was brought into baseball to begin with, but it's certainly become something that people have used to their advantage in ways that I don't think baseball was quite prepared for. No, and, and for there are a lot of baseball people uh, that listen to this podcast, and I've gotten you know responses on Twitter, and I'm sure you do as well, that, that have been fans for a long time, and their reaction to this is going to be on some level, this type of thing has gone on forever in baseball. I don't think either you or I have a problem with – teams being able to figure out signs from the manager in the dugout or if a third base coach gets a little lazy with you know throwing out his indicator if somebody's going to bunt or steal we're okay with stuff like that but this use of technology mm-hmm. to be able to just sit and watch and relay it in real time that's different than a guy on second base trying to you know a runner on second base trying to show location by either leaning back towards yeah. the bag or leaning towards third that, to me, that's part of the game. That's yes. no different than a linebacker faking a blitz or walking up into the you know to the line of scrimmage to 100%. try to make the quarterback think he's coming. That's different. And it's funny because you read the history of, like, sign stealing. It's been going on forever. Mm-hmm. But I, I remember the story going back, I want to say it was the late 50s, when Ford Frick, who was the major league commissioner at the time, they had experimented in an all-star game with a center field camera. And we're able to get in, and this was the first time that they've been really been able to, you know, focus in on the catcher. And everybody thought, wow, this is amazing. Look at this, how clear this is. You can see everything. The next week they used it again. It was a Red Sox-Yankees game. And Mel Allen and Phil Rizzuto were calling the national broadcast of the game. And they used that same camera. And those guys were able to, at the time, predict every single pitch because signs were easy then. One was a fastball Two is a curve, you know, whatever it was. And they were calling every pitch. And Frick realized then in the late 50s, we can't do this. If the announcers are able to do this, this is going to give rise to to the teams being able to figure out how to do this as well. So he banned network television from using that center field camera focused on the catcher that we're so used to today. He banned it because he knew that the teams would use it. And sure enough, down the road, they did. And this is just the next evolution of it. To me, it's a bridge too far, though. The use of technology and to be able to bang on a trash can or an Apple Watch or whatever, that's not the same thing as being able to figure out if a guy touches his nose and then rubs his right arm that they're stealing second base. Yeah, and again, I'm not sitting here saying that the art of sign stealing has no place in the game because I think it is as old as the game, and I don't think anybody's complaining about that. And there's certain ways to gain a competitive advantage that if you can read a situation well, that's good on you, and maybe that's bad on the person that's not doing a good job of covering the thing up. But when you start to get into the technology and and a bunch of systems in order to take real-time information that maybe you're not really supposed to have in the manner in which they have it with all the technology of the camera angles and the video replay room and other things like that, and then turning that to your advantage, that was not why that system was put into place. And, you know, I don't want to spend the whole show on this, but the sign-stealing thing and using technology for it, I mean, it does go way on back, not just the broadcast scenario that you brought up, but late 40s, early 50s, I think in particular with the 1951 Giants, they were using a telescope in center field to steal signs because it was pointed right in at the catcher and they were signaling in, hey, you know, you're knowing what pitch is coming basically. And that might explain a lot about how the 1951 Giants were actually able to do all the things they did down the stretch, culminating with, of course, the shot heard around the world. But long story short, it's not that sign stealing is bad and needs to go away, but taking technology to this level and at this level and using that to gain an unfair advantage, I just don't think that's in the spirit of competition at all. And I can't think of too many people that are going to argue that it should be allowed or that it makes the game better. If anything, it legitimately is cheating the game in ways that I'm sure we could spend a whole nother podcast or seven talking about things that aren't great for the game. This would certainly be on the list, a very short list for me. Yeah, we could do an entire podcast and more on the cheating scandals. And I would imagine right now the people most upset 
in Major League Baseball are probably Dodger fans. They lost to both the Astros and Red Sox in you know, 17 and 18. They're probably ticked at the cheating that went on. But let's be honest, if they don't come down hard on the Astros and they don't come down hard on the Red Sox, it opens it up for every other team in Major League Baseball to say, you know what, it's worth a $500,000 fine or a $1 million fine if we can get far into the playoffs or even win a World Series like those two teams did. Yeah, I, I guess that it is. And at the end of the day, I mean, a decision's already been made. So retroactively, there's not much you can do about the World Series. But in terms of the long term and going forward, what the future should be for this, Major League Baseball needs to take all of the steps necessary to make sure there's a very clear message sent about what is and is not acceptable when it comes to using technology in the game. It ain't going away, but that doesn't mean that it should be put to use in ways that was not intended and does not enhance what happens between the white lines. Absolutely. All right, a trade in Major League Baseball this week. Tampa Bay and St. Louis exchanging some players, also some draft picks, which is my favorite part of the deal. Thursday, St. Louis sent outfielders Jose Martinez and Randy Rosarina to Tampa Bay for left-handed pitching prospect Matt Libator and also a low-level catching prospect as well. The two clubs swapping draft picks, my favorite part of the deal, number 38 overall to the Rays, number 66 overall to the Cardinals. What do you think of the deal? Is it good for both sides? And how much fun is it when draft picks finally get moved in Major League Baseball? No, I think it is cool that you can trade draft picks. Obviously, there are those competitive balance rounds that you're able to deal otherwise. I think you might see a very different-looking Major League Baseball draft every year if all of the draft picks were available to be traded all of the time. But uh, kind of back to this trade, I think it's a win-win for both of the teams because Tampa Bay has been very... I would say astute about how they bring in major league help and what kind of players that they bring in via trade that may not have quite reached their ceiling where they were the previous place, but always seem to find maybe an extra gear or another level when they get down to Tampa Bay. In fact, they've done this with the Cardinals not too long ago when they got Tommy Pham. I like Jose Martinez. I'm not sure he's a National League style player. He's not much as far as defensively speaking, but the guy can certainly hit and he wears out left-handers. That's something that I think Tampa Bay needed a little bit more punch in that lineup. Randy Rosarina is a really exciting young prospect. He's got a lot of speed. That's something I think that Tampa Bay was excited about, getting a nice athletic outfield prospect they can have around for a while. And then if you're the Cardinals, you can't be upset about getting a consensus, really top 50 prospect in all of baseball in Matt Liberator. And then you swap the draft picks where the Rays now get number 38 overall and the Cardinals jump back to number 66 overall. So, when you talk about balancing this whole thing out as far as an equation is concerned, I really like this trade for both sides. I think that there's obviously a lot of talent going two different directions, and you've got clubs that I think are going to benefit from exactly what they picked up in this trade. So as much as a lot of us like to grade the trade immediately and say, well, this was the winner and this was clearly the loser, and look at it with a little bit of hindsight, which, of course, we'll get in a few years. But I really like this. I think it was creative, and it's exactly the kind of stuff I've come to expect from the Tampa Bay Rays. Yeah, Liberator, I think, becomes the Cardinals probably one of their top five prospects For right sure. out of the gate. For sure. He's only, what, 19, 20 years old. Yeah. Um, was dominant in the Midwest League last year at just 19. I think he turned 20 after the season ended. So he automatically becomes one of their top prospects, which is fantastic. Uh, Arroz Arena, again, as you mentioned, coming from Cuba, one of those guys that he smashed AAA pitching uh, before he came up for his September call-up, 358 batting average, 435 on base, 593 slugging. Now, I don't know that he's going to do that in the majors, but he did hit 300 coming up in September. So I think it's a good move, especially for the Rays in this case, because even though Rosarina is 24, he's under control until 2026. So I think you're right. Both sides kind of got what they wanted, got what they needed. Martinez, to me, just kind of a throw-in. He was good his first couple years. I don't know if pitchers figured him out last year or if it was the shoulder injury, but his batting average dropped all the way down to, to like 270 after he'd hit over 300. His slugging was 100 points lower than it was in 2017. So the Rays may be hoping that was injury-related, but even if it's not, again, I think they're the guy that they wanted was a Rosarina, and they got him, and they have him now for the next six years. Yeah, and again, I think that also speaks to like what kind of style of player is a Jose Martinez, because we're not talking about a young kid here either. I mean, this is a guy who's 30, uh, what, 31, I believe, at this point. Yeah. So you kind of know what he is. Might he be able to fare a little bit better in a different league? Sure. But as you mentioned, I mean, the slugging percentage certainly dropped. He got on base at a decent clip. He can he walk a little bit. 
Doesn't strike out a ton, but if the power's not there in a year in which we were talking about a juiced baseball all season, I can see why the Cardinals may not have him in their future plans. So just an interesting trade. I think a Rosarina is a nice get for them, uh, for the Tampa Bay Rays, because of what he can do all across the board. And just an interesting note for the many people that listen to this podcast for Braves Talk, uh, Rosarina was known, I think, more so than anything uh, for the fact that he was the guy streaming live Mike Schilt's Game 5 post-game profanity-laced celebration about the Braves being beaten by the Cardinals in the NLDS. That went viral. That was not a great look for the Cardinals, for Mike Schilt, or for really anyone involved. I'm all for that stuff happening behind closed doors, but the uh, Instagram Live feature probably needs to be disabled by players when they're celebrating big moments uh, with uh, copious amounts of beer and champagne. (laughs) That's great life advice for anybody, let alone ballplayers. There it is. All right, as we uh, look at what else is happening across the National League, the Washington Nationals, the last man standing when it came to the playoffs last year, they beat the Cardinals. They also went to the World Series, won the whole thing finally, and they remain busy this winter. This past week, they had a handful of signings, including infielder Starlin Castro and Eric Thames, and they re-signed Asdrubal Cabrera, who was with them last year. Now, reading the tea leaves, Bill, the way that I look at this is, This looks like the Nationals are not going to sit back and get stuck with no plan B if Josh Donaldson decides he's going to sign somewhere other than D.C. It sounds like to me the Nats and the Twins are pessimistic a few days ago. Now the reports, they kind of vary. So who really knows if Donaldson returns to Atlanta or if we're just going to continue this wonderful waiting game that we've been stuck in for a while. Yeah, I don't think the Nats signing Castro necessarily puts them out on Donaldson, but certainly it gives them some motivation maybe for him to get it done because he sees that, you know, all of a sudden the the chairs are starting to get pulled away in this musical chairs of where free agents are going to land. But Castro to me is going to be the the starting second baseman for this team going forward. He could play third if necessary. Still has a little bit of pop, 22 home runs last year. Does strike out a ton, but in this day and age, that doesn't seem to bother a lot of people. So he's a little bit above a, a league average guy, in my opinion. As far as Cabrera goes, look, he was fantastic for them in little under 40 games last year, hitting well over 300, you know, had a great uh, slugging percentage. I think he hit six home runs in those 38 games. Wasn't the guy that got released earlier in the year when the Nats picked him up off the scrap heap. But I don't think the Nationals are expecting, A, for him to play that many games for them. He's a a nice fill-in when a guy needs a rest. He's a nice bat off the bench. But if they're expecting him to, to hit 323 again and slug 560, they are sorely mistaken as far as that goes. The more interesting one to me is Thames because if he is there as the left-handed bat to play first base, which makes sense because he hits very well against right-handed pitching, who's his platoon partner at this point? Is it going to be Howie Kendrick who they brought back or are they still waiting around to figure out Ryan Zimmerman right. is still out there? And Zimmerman's a guy that has said repeatedly, it ain't about the money. He just wants to come back and play in Washington. He'd like to get a deal done, whether it's for one year, two years, whatever it is. And they haven't got anything done with him. To me, that is the big question mark on all these signings this week. Because again, Cabrera can play a little bit of first base. We know Howie Kendrick can play first base. Thames can play first base, so what happens now with Ryan Zimmerman? Josh Donaldson, again, is a question mark for a couple of teams. Zimmerman's just a question mark for the Nationals at this point. Yeah, and I think the Nationals have a few different things going on here because, to me, the glut of infielders that you're dealing with all of a sudden, especially if they re-sign Zimmerman, it's going to be tough to find playing time for Thames, Zimmerman, and Howie Kendrick, and Starlin Castro, and as Drupal Cabrera, especially since some of them can't really move across the diamond and play third base. Others of them can. If you throw Josh Donaldson in on top of that, that really seems to be an extremely crowded infield. So it would feel like there's just too many bodies at this point to figure out exactly how your infield is going to rotate around, especially since none of these guys, save maybe Thames, is really going to play much, if any, in the outfield because you're pretty set there if you're the Washington Nationals. So I'm interested to see where it goes and and how this Josh Donaldson thing plays out. And it also comes back to something we've talked about the last few weeks. If Washington's making a big money offer, I would imagine there's some deferred money involved in anything they've put on the table for Josh Donaldson, especially if we're talking about a four-year contract. I mean, you've been around that club, seen a lot about how they do their business, more so than I have, up close and personal, so to speak. What do you make of that? And do you think that deferred money might be a big deterrent? 
to getting a Josh Donaldson deal done just based on the fact that the Nats might want to stay under that luxury tax. I'm sure they're trying to, but $25 plus million a year for Josh Donaldson will put him over. Yeah, and I think that's a, a very good point as far as the deferred money. They're still paying some guys that they signed five, six years ago. Um, they love deferred money. That was the big thing with the Bryce Harper negotiations and, and why he kind of turned it down because he didn't want to get paid until he was 65 years old uh, on a contract he signed when he was 25 years old. So it, definitely Washington does use that many, many times. Now, I haven't heard or haven't been told or haven't seen anything as far as Donaldson's contract and how much of it would be deferred money. So that may be a sticking point for him. He may want it all up front, which would make sense. Um, I think a lot of this, the guys that are being signed here, they're not big-time High dollar expensive deals. So if they needed to make a move, if they need to cut somebody, if it just wasn't going to work out, it's not like they're going to be throwing away millions upon millions of dollars if they bring in Josh Donaldson. But I do think this probably has lowered the percentage of a chance of him signing there with all these guys here. As you said, they are very crowded in the infield. They are pretty set in the outfield. In fact, I think they just avoided arbitration with Michael A. Taylor as yeah. well. So they should be all set as far as their top four outfielders going into next year. So, yeah, again, to me, the the spots and places are running out for a guy like Donaldson and a guy like Ryan Zimmerman. Yeah, I mean, if you're running out of places to play people and you're running out of money to pay people, then I would imagine the Nationals have to feel pretty good about what they've been able to construct, especially if they're still trying to hold a spot at the table for a guy like Ryan Zimmerman. That makes a ton of sense, but I also look at losing Anthony Rendon and not really getting somebody who's comparable to that kind of player which Josh Donaldson would be more so than anyone that they've signed in this offseason. That's another question, I guess, maybe that they've been asking themselves for a while, and perhaps everything is kind of moved in a direction where the Nats just don't feel that they're going to be able to get this thing done. And you do. You don't want to be caught without some kind of backup plan. If you're not able to get the guy that you're trying to sign, you've got to have some kind of contingency in place, and it looks like they have. Yeah, they may be on plan B, C, D at this point because Donaldson, sure. I think, was probably right up there uh, plan A for Rendon doesn't look like it's going to happen uh, for them, so they they have moved on. Uh, Cincinnati has been one of the more active teams here in the offseason, and they sign another free agent. This one, though, coming from the Japanese Professional League, outfielder Shogo Akiyama, three years, $21 million. They're going to be fun to watch, but are they now the team to beat in the NL Central? Again, I don't know if they're going to be the team to beat, but you have to like what the Reds have done in terms of just making themselves better. And it really started last year when they went out and got Trevor Bauer. Now, he was awful in Cincinnati. I don't think there's any two ways about that. But when you look at the rotation that they boast now, especially after adding Wade Miley, I really like the starting five. I think their bullpen's more than capable. And you're throwing a Mike Moustakis. That was going to change the Reds' lineup uh, quite a bit. And now you look at Akiyama, who is not a young guy. I mean, he's in his early 30s, but you go look at his numbers in Japan, and if he's anything close to this kind of player, where he just seems to fill up every column, he's scored 100 runs, 30 doubles, 20 homers, 80 runs knocked in, 10 to 15 stolen bases, walks pretty well, doesn't strike out a ton, could on base around 400, at least those were his numbers in Japan. If he comes anywhere close to that, maybe even two-thirds to three-quarters of that kind of production, this is going to be a really nice signing at 6 or $7 million a year. So I think this just makes them that much better. I look at the Cardinals as the hurdle that you've got to clear if you're in the National League Central. I have no idea what the Cubs are doing. I have no idea what the Cubs are going to look like come opening day, especially if they deal away at Chris Bryant. I think the door is open for the Cincinnati Reds. I think that they feel that they have the possibility of jumping in there. The Brewers are going to be a big player in that division as well, but – I don't think you should look at the Reds and say, well, we can count them out because there's three better teams in the division. I don't know that there's three better teams in the Cincinnati Reds. I'm not really sure if there's a better team on paper in the Central than the Reds after all they've done this winter. And I like it. You mentioned it, that he's 31. To me, that's good for them bringing him in and that three-year deal is kind of the window I think that we look at with the Reds with all the moves that they've made is probably over the next couple of years – this is their time to either make a push to get into the playoffs, win the division, win a wild card, whatever it may be, before the next wave of their young talent comes through and they kind of have to do a reset. They're not one of these teams, you know, like the Dodgers, like the Yankees that are just going to throw, you know, money after money after money to bring in 
free agents to keep them near the top. They're going to have to do this in kind of these little short windows. And I think the next three years may be that window for them. As you mentioned, the 300 career hitter over in Japan. We've had varying results of Japanese players coming here. Ichiro, obviously, the high watermark. But we've seen other guys that have come and hit and, and been pretty decent players and probably worth $7 million a year. It's not a bloated contract. To me, if anything, he ends up being a steal at $7 million a year for the next three years. I'm not sure if you look at it on paper that there's anybody that's way better than anybody else in the NL Central when you talk about those top three or four teams. Yeah. There isn't a Dodgers. There isn't a Yankees in that division. So mm-hmm. a little bit of luck. Win a bunch of one-run games, you might find yourself playing in October. Yeah, and I agree with that. And I think the outfield was maybe the one spot where they could just use a little bit more in terms of not only just depth, but also talent. I mean, Nick Senzel, I think, is going to be a very good player, but he's coming off shoulder surgery. Uh, Aristides Aquino, we saw, could come up and really hit some home runs. But I don't know if he's necessarily a guy that can do that with some consistency. They're going to hope to find that out. They've got a handful of guys in the outfield that you could like to a certain extent, but you just wonder what is the consistent everyday lineup going to look like? And I think Akiyama, that signing adds a lot because he is a proven commodity where he comes from that they scouted very heavily. He's also really excited to be the first Japanese born player to play in Cincinnati. So maybe that's a little bit of extra motivation for him. Oh, by the way, great American ballpark, not a bad place to play 81 games. So I think all things considered, I mean, this is not the biggest signing of the off season, but when you look at what the Reds have done in totality, this is another good move by Cincinnati to improve their chances of perhaps winning a division that really hasn't had an open door for them in quite some time. They've just been treading water, it feels like, for a little while. Yeah, it could be a really sneaky good move for them, and we may be talking about it six, seven months from now about, wow, how did the Cincinnati only get him for a three years and $7 million per year when anybody could have bid on him? Or worst-case scenario, at $7 million a year, that's not a contract that you can't afford to eat. So I think they've kind of... I hedged their bets very well here with a player who could be good for them, and they've put the money in there to find out. And beginning on opening day, I guess we'll find out exactly what Shogo Akiyama has for the Reds and what they can do in the National League Central. Meanwhile, let's stay in the state of Ohio as we spent all winter wondering if Francisco Lindor would be on the move. Well, the Indians team president, Chris Antonetti, provided an update on that this week, saying that he's more confident that Lindor will remain in Cleveland because no one gave the Indians an offer to their liking. If you remember, back in December, there was a give-us-your-last-best-offer-for-Francisco-Lindor edict that went out from the Cleveland Indians. And this may keep Lindor in town for a while, but do you think that he will make it past the July trade deadline and still be wearing an Indians uniform? It's a cop-out for me, Grant, because I'm going to go the same way with Lindor as I did with Mookie Betts. If Cleveland is in the race, if they're still in the hunt in July, and they could be, it's possible, sure. Oh, sure. Uh, then then Lindor sticks around. If they're under 500, if they're struggling, if it doesn't look like anything is going to go Cleveland's way, then that edict will go out again, and they'll say, give us your best mid-year offer for Lindor, and we'll see if we can't make a trade. The difference is, bet's a free agent after this year. Lindor still has two more years of team control, so he's going to be worth way more right now than Mookie Betts. That, to me, has been the sticking point all along, is that Cleveland knows what they have. They also know that they don't necessarily have to get rid of him, whereas the Red Sox know that Mookie Betts is going to at least test free agency after this year, no matter what happens. So I think Lindor sticks around as long as Cleveland sticks around, and maybe even beyond this year. We may be doing this again next winter because the Indians know they don't have to move him. They can still keep him on their team. To me, I hope wherever he ends up, whether it stays in Cleveland, whether he goes somewhere else, I hope it's to a contender because this guy's too much fun and he's too good to watch languish somewhere on a team that's going to win 75 ballgames. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And the, the interesting name that's been linked to not only Mookie Betts, but also to Francisco Lindor in terms of a team that could be interested in making a move and it certainly has the ability to pay the price in terms of young players that a team like Cleveland would want is the Los Angeles Dodgers, and they have not been a big spender this winter, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in just a moment. But when you look at the Dodgers, if they were to make a deal that somehow had Corey Seager going to Cleveland and Francisco Lindor coming back that allowed the Dodgers to hold on to, say, Gavin Lux or some other young player that they don't really want to deal but also get a Francisco Lindor, I would think that that'd be an avenue worth exploring if I'm the L.A. Dodgers. Not because I want to give up on Corey Seager, 
But the fact is, if you have a chance to get Francisco Lindor and finally put yourselves over the top and win that World Series, and you've got the money to make this whole thing happen as well, you're not worried about those arbitration salaries, that to me is something that I think would be interesting. As for the Indians, they may not be interested in Corey Seager headlining that deal because he's been in the big leagues for a few years. He can obviously get to free agency before too long, and they may not want that to be the return that they get for a franchise player. But just kind of thinking, not even really outside the box, but just in things that might make a little bit of sense, I think the Dodgers could get this deal done, and the Indians don't have to end up with Gavin Lux if that's not the way the Dodgers want to go. Yeah, I think when you look at the contenders or the teams that we think will be contenders uh, going into this year, the Dodgers maybe make the most sense for bringing in a, a Lindor. You look at Washington, I mean, maybe they don't think that Trey Turner long-term is their shortstop of the future, but... For right now, you have him penciled in, and he may even end up batting third in that Nationals lineup, depending on who's there. So I'm not good. sure they would necessarily bring in Lindor unless they think they can move Turner over to third base or something like that. You look at some of the other contenders as well, it's kind of the same thing. It's like, yeah, he's better than what we have, but what we have isn't horrible. Yeah. So why would we make that move for him? So um, I think you're right. I think the Dodgers probably make the most sense, not only because – they could move Seager, but also because they're going to be willing to pay Lindor in a couple of years, or they can let him walk in a couple of years. If he's the reason they win a World Series, then you know what? It's kind of like that thing that Bill Simmons of ESPN says all the time. You win a championship, you got a five- to seven-year grace period where your fans shouldn't be complaining about anything. So if they win a World Series, they shouldn't complain if Lindor then walks a couple years later. Well, you certainly hope so, and it's easy to say that on the front end, but I do think it's kind of amusing sometimes when we go back and look at that I don't think you get five to seven years anymore. Maybe you used to, but I don't think you get it anymore. And I think an example of that would be Joe Madden already out of Chicago three years after breaking a curse that went on for over a century. So I, I don't know what the grace period is. Maybe it varies by city, team, and fan base. But, uh, yeah, if you make the Lindor move and you win a World Series, you've got to be happy that you made that move, I think, because, as they say, you can have the great farm system. You can have the great young talent. You can hold on to it and hold on to it and hold on to it. But if you have a chance to finally win, you know, flags fly forever, right? I mean, that's what they yeah. say. So at some point you want to turn all of that currency, the prospect currency and the talent that you have that you can use to put yourself over the top. You need to spend that and really give yourself the opportunity to win it. Otherwise, what are you doing the whole thing for? It seems like a pretty frustrating exercise if you can't really finish the drill, get over the top and win the whole thing. Yeah, and that's a, a, much like the cheating scandal. That's another thing that I think we could do an entire podcast on is is some of these teams that are they really legitimately trying to win yeah. in the immediate term or even in a five-year plan? Because I think there are some teams out there that for whatever reason, whether it's monetary restrictions or just uh, bad front office folks or whatever it is, that you can look in year after year after year, you really figure – they're not going to be in the mix. They have no shot at really being a contender. And I think it's getting to be separated more and more and more as we see teams like the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Dodgers just want to spend, spend, spend. And they're able to also have a pretty good farm system as well. Red Sox aside in that scenario. But, I mean, look at the the, the prospects that the Dodgers have sitting there. As you mentioned, a Gavin Lux, a Dustin May, mm -hmm. guys like that that – most other teams would absolutely kill to have those guys in the minor league, and they can't even make it to the major leagues because of the town in front of them yeah. in a lot of cases. Yeah, it seems like that's the great line that you have to figure out when you're going to cross it and how far across the line you're going to go is what you're going to spend in these trades, what you're going to spend in free agency, of course, is another big question. But the Dodgers are a club that really has the opportunity that not a whole lot of other teams have to make these kind of deals happen. They're a really well-run organization. They've obviously gotten to the biggest stage you can get to. But if you look at what L.A. has done, while we talk about them every single year, last time they won a World Series, Kurt Gibson was a big reason why. So I think they're ready to go ahead and put one on the board. And a Francisco Lindor, that might be the move that gets it done, given the talent they've already got on hand. Yeah, absolutely. All right, a big move for the Pirates this week. Well, not really, but Guillermo Heredia signs with them. Why does that matter to us? Because now there are only two teams, Grant, that have not spent in free agency, the Cubs and the Rockies. What's going on with Chicago, of all things? Colorado, I guess, makes a little more sense, but 
The Cubs, as you mentioned, three years removed from World Series, and they're making no moves here in the offseason. You know, as I laid out this show, I just was thinking about this overall concept of not spending a dollar on Major League free agents. And I remember not long ago just looking at the Braves, and I think that the most money they had spent on a Major League free agent was A.J. Pierzynski. And that's not exactly where you want to be if you feel like the barometer for your club or the needle for your club is pointing up and you're heading in the right direction. So I really have to wonder, especially about the Cubs, because it's not like they can't spend or just won't spend ever because they've spent and not too long ago. I mean, they made a deal to sign Craig Kimbrell in the middle of the season. Clearly, they felt like they still had a club worth adding a closer for multiple years to, which to me, that's usually a luxury when you're spending big money on your closer. But kind of getting back to the point, the Rockies dropped 20 games from where they were the year before. And I think that's a big reason why we're sitting around talking about is Nolan Arenado on his way out of Colorado. So they had a chance to answer the question about, do we want to bounce back and show that 2019 was the outlier and we're still built to win? The Rockies are pretty much saying no, which I think would motivate a guy like Arenado to be open to the possibility of a trade. Getting back to the Cubs, they make a managerial change. They bring in a guy like David Ross that everybody loves. You look at their roster, it's certainly not bad. They're not strapped for talent, but there are notable holes. And I think this can go all the way back to talking about the Reds. Now other teams in that division have to feel like, okay, we don't necessarily have to wait on Chicago to hit a speed bump for us to have a chance in this division. We can go out and compete and be just as good as these guys. So what message is it sending your team? What message is it sending your fan base when you don't spend any money in free agency on major league players? And I realize they still have a month or five weeks before spring training starts to get something done. I don't think it's a great message when we're sitting here, it's already a new year, and you don't feel like you've done anything in that arena to make your club better. And last I checked, neither of those clubs have made big trades either. So it's a head-scratcher for both those teams. Yeah, the only thing that I can think of for Chicago, and it still doesn't make any sense because it's one guy, one position, is maybe they're trying to figure out what exactly is going to happen with Chris Bryant. But that doesn't explain their lack of movement and trying to build a better bullpen uh, or getting a starter uh, to help out because, again, John Lester is a fine pitcher, but he's at the end of his career, and he's not going to be able to give you those 200-plus innings that Bulldog John Lester used to be able to do back in the day. So that, to me, doesn't make any sense. The Rockies, I guess, maybe because they don't want to spend the money and maybe they do feel like, you know what, even with uh, some of the big hitters that we have, we're not going to be able to be contenders. We're not going to be able to catch the Dodgers. You know, Arizona made themselves better. I'm not sure what's going on there. When their only move so far this offseason has been to sign the former Pirate Ellis Diaz to a minor league deal to be one of four guys to come in for two spots at catcher, yeah, that doesn't that doesn't inspire confidence if you're a Colorado fan. No, it doesn't. And you just brought up the Diamondbacks. If we're sitting here a year ago doing this show, I don't think either one of us could sit here and say, is, is either one of these clubs head and shoulders better than the other one, the Arizona Diamondbacks or the Colorado Rockies? Now I think that the answer is a little bit more clear because of Arizona's willingness to go out and make itself better and Colorado just kind of staying in neutral after a season in which they were rolling the wrong way back down the hill and the Arizona Diamondbacks passed them in the standings. I mean, the Rockies were a club that I thought was good enough to get into the playoffs last year and be a wild card team. They've always been able to hit enough. They've got the names as far as the lineup's concerned. Questions abound when they go on the road, of course, but Either way, I mean, this is just a really strange offseason for them and what could be a pivotal offseason if we end up seeing Arenado getting moved at some point, whether it's this winter or by the trade deadline before the year's over. Yeah, I think if they are going to go with this idea that they need to get younger, and they probably do. They've got some guys that are a little bit long in the tooth. I mean, Ian Desmond still plays a significant role for them, whether he's over at first base or in the outfield. And and he's just never been the hitter that anybody thought that he was going to be once he got out of Washington after the one or two years that he had there that were that were uh, above average. But if they're going to get younger, they've got to move Arenado. He's got to be the guy that's the key to that move. Um, it's just a matter, again, of the contenders out there. I mean, Washington makes the most sense, I suppose, but I'm not sure they have the, the, the prospect capital to make that happen. Um, if Donaldson ends up in Atlanta, what does Atlanta need him for? I mean, that, that's yeah, the thing is don't. you've got to find the match in order to get the trade done. I guess we go back to the joke we made last week, which is there's a 50-50 chance that a trade of Nolan Arenado can happen, and we'll find out which part of that 100% certainty that we have that something's going to happen is the eventual outcome for whether he stays or goes. In the National League Central, as we've talked about that division a lot today, Craig Council received a three-year contract extension that's going to keep him in Milwaukee 
through the year 2023. He has piloted the Brewers to October each of the last two seasons and been a finalist for manager of the year honors. You could make an argument that he could have won it in either of those two years. Regardless, Council is going to have his hands full this year with a boatload of new talent because the Brewers are a team I think can still win, but they have had a ton of turnover over the winter and kind of rebuilding this roster in hoping to just get right back where they were, which is a chance to play some October baseball again. Yeah, I love Council. I'm happy that he got an extension here. He's done a remarkable job there in Milwaukee. It was amazing going back and looking at some of the the managers that they've had, and I was thinking about, okay, where does he rank as far as all-time Milwaukee managers? Obviously, everybody looks at the Harvey Coon because of him getting them to the World Series, but he was only there for two years, yeah. which I was surprised at. Being I was you know fairly young when he was their manager. I thought he would have been there longer than that, but Council already has taken them to more postseason appearances. And I know there's the wild card now, so it's a little bit easier. But he's the only guy that's ever taken Milwaukee twice to the postseason. So this is well-deserved for him. He's going to end up after this year. He'll be number two in career wins behind Phil Gardner, who was there for about seven or eight years. I like the fact that they kept him. I think stability is good. And if you think about it, just two years ago, he pushed the Dodgers to a game seven and that NLCS, we were that close to it being Milwaukee-Boston yeah. in 2018. So I like it. I think it's a good move. The only downside is I was looking at stuff, and I kind of chuckled to myself that this even matters, is that he was ranked as one of the worst managers when it comes to replay challenges. And I went, who cares? You sure. don't know. You don't know if this was something in the eighth inning where you're like, ah, we haven't challenged yet. We're going to lose, but right. throw it out there just in case. But he was something like 20% or less wow. on his replay challenges. Who cares? It's To me, it's a meaningless stat, but I just thought I'd throw it out there because, hey, there's a knock on Craig Council. I guess that's it. You know what? I would blame his support staff more so for that because he's got to yes. get an indication from that replay room of, hey, is this worth a challenge or is it not? And as you mentioned, sometimes you just do it because, hey, it's worth a shot. Maybe it's a 50-50 chance and it'll go that way. And as we've seen, replay is not exactly the most perfect system in any way, shape, or form. But either way, I think Council's done a, a great job up there. And you mentioned that we were – maybe this close to seeing the Brewers take a different step or have a, a different outcome to their season. How about the wild card game last year? I mean, it could have been a yeah. totally different thing if not for one misplayed ball in right field. It might not have been the Nationals winning the World Series, and we don't know what would have happened as the whole thing played out. But regardless, I think the Brewers have put themselves in a position to be there. They've got a guy like Christian Yelich at least for a little while longer. I think they owe it to themselves to just continue the path they're on, and Craig Council has been a big reason for their success. Yeah, and you, and you mentioned Yelich. It was impressive because I'm sure the conversations that you guys had down there, I know that we had up here, when he went down, everybody went, oh, that's a shame because Milwaukee was right yeah. there, but this is it for them. And they were amazing down the stretch to still find their way into the wild card without uh, arguably not only their best player, but probably one of the top three to five best players in the National League. And and again, I think you have to give Council a lot of credit in that regard. And not just that, too, just to, to kind of put a bow on this, but when Christian Yelich went down and everybody said, oh, it's unfortunate, like you said, they their season is probably going to come off the rails, they proceeded to play even better. And then I heard people in the off season, as we got to award season anyway, talking about, well, that's a detriment toward Christian Yelich being an MVP candidate if his club can be this good without him which I thought was just a throw-your-hands-in-the-air, fascinatingly frustrating aspect of yes. how you can make numbers say whatever you want them to say if you believe it enough to really make a point. And we're not going to agree on anything ever, so I don't know why we try. Nobody's going to be happy, but these awards are going to go out. Somebody's going to get them. It was just funny to hear somebody use that as a detriment to having a season like Christian Yelich had and being the driving force behind the Brewers lineup for as long as he was. Absolutely. All right. Speaking of former award winners, Heisman Trophy winner Tim oh. Tebow will be back with the Mets in camp this spring. Fourth go-around for him. When he first signed, he had some success in the low minors. It seemed he might get a call up to the big leagues just for the publicity. But after the last couple of years, is this the end of the road for Mr. Tebow? And do the Mets really want to bring him up in September? Yeah, I mean, we've gotten into this whole thing a few different times over the years. And look, I have a lot of respect for how Tim Tebow handles himself. Tim Tebow, the person, I've always had a lot of respect for that. Even being a guy that is in the state of Georgia and was not on the great side of the rivalry when it comes to Georgia, Florida for a number of years and seeing Tim Tebow win a Heisman, win a national championship. Those are things that you look at and you think, wow, that would be really nice to happen to my team. But when it comes to baseball, 
this has been something that I've really scratched my head a lot about over the years as to what exactly is this proving if you're the Mets, if not for the publicity. Given the guy the opportunity, I don't have a problem with. I wasn't really so much in the camp of, oh, well, he's taking away the opportunity from some kid that deserves it more than he does. Look, put him out on the field, and if he plays well, then I would say he deserves it. But you got to put up the numbers. And for the last couple of seasons, especially last year, Tim Tebow really didn't take a step forward that leads me to believe that he needs to be brought up and put in a major league uniform. Stranger things have happened, I guess, but I just don't see it. I don't know that the Mets are really in a place right now that they were a few years ago where this feels like an inevitability to sell jerseys or something like that. I'm sure they've sold plenty of those already. But when you hit 163 in AAA, I just don't see how there's going to be a, a clear path to the majors for you if you're able to stick around in AAA for a whole other season. He's not on the 40-man. You're not going to put this guy in as your first call up of the season if so-and-so goes down on the injured list for 10 days. I just don't see it. I, I don't know how you feel about it, but I, I think at this point it's probably outlived its usefulness on the news cycle. Yeah, I, look, I'm I'm with you in, in pretty much all of that. To me, look, good for Tim Tebow, right? I, I don't hate on him sure. at all for taking this opportunity. I think you and I would have done the exact same thing years ago. I would have loved to have played in the minor leagues for four years, even if I hit 163 in AAA. That would have been amazing. But it, to me, it does reek from prior years of it being a publicity stunt. Yeah. And he was actually decent in 2018 at double a decent. I mean, like 270 or whatever right. it was 265. So, I mean, at least you were like, okay, he wasn't overmatched. You mentioned the number though, 163 in triple a 240 on base, 255 slugging. You are overmatched at that point. And I know you said, look, he's not blocking some other kid out there, but to me, there's gotta be somebody that the Mets would think might be able to help them at the major league level that could use those 260-some plate appearances True. more than Tim Tebow at this point. Now, doesn't mean that there's some you know 20-year-old stud prospect that he's blocking. They're not going to do that. But you still would think that as a AAA manager, I don't want to send a guy up there hitting 163 for nearly 250, 300 plate appearances because it just makes my job that much harder. Yeah, you would think not. But, I mean, like I said, stranger things have happened when it comes to clubs making different decisions about different players to maybe give them an opportunity that wasn't necessarily needed in that season. I think that Tim Tebow getting in a bat or two in the major leagues or being a September call-up had those been a thing, which now they're not a thing. So we don't even have to go down that road in 2020 because you're not expanding your roster to 40 men anymore. So I think that the window or the door or both are probably closed to this. But if he goes down to AAA and manages to do anything close to what he did in AA, hit 270 or above with a little bit of power, maybe he gets that call. But at this point, I think this is probably the end of the road for, I won't call it an experiment because if he was earnest about it and just wanted the opportunity to see if he can do it, good on him. Because like you said, a lot of us would have liked to have had that opportunity. But uh, long story short, I do think that from a prospect perspective, this was never something that was a long-term move to make the Mets better. It was done, I think, a lot to garner some publicity and like I said, maybe sell a few jerseys. But it's not the weirdest thing that has happened recently it is not. in the minor leagues and even for a team in New York because a former Yankees prospect apparently is not a very big fan of Derek Jeter. In fact, this prospect feels that Jeter blocked his path to the majors uh, and a career that ended some seven years ago. Garrison Lasseter sued the Yankees, alleging that Jeter, a future Hall of Famer, we'll find that out very soon, uh, ran the organization and ruined Lassiter's career. So he was seeking $34 million in damages from the Yankees because they did not develop his talents. This suit was thrown out last May. And, Bill, I've heard a lot of things. But this was a new one for me, suing the team because you didn't make the major leagues and a future Hall of Famer was the reason why. I don't even know where to start. I've never heard of Garrison Lasseter until you sent me the email about the topics we were going to do today. And after today, I hope I never have to talk about him again, quite <laughs> honestly. This is some of the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. He never got past high A ball yeah. in his career. So I'm not sure how he was blocked. Is he suing the guys in AAA and AA that were ahead of him as well? Because apparently they were blocking him from moving on. This is absurd this is great tabloid, back page, headline stuff. Look, he left baseball in 2012, tried to go to the University of Miami to play football, 
never made it onto the field for them. So you know what? Move on at some point. You're like the guy in the Bruce Springsteen song, Glory Days. You're just holding on to your old high school memories. It's over. I'm glad the judge threw it out because this thing was absolutely absurd. All right, well, I've got some great news for you, some news that you may not believe because I decided to go to Baseball Reference and figure out exactly where the career of Garrison Lasseter came to a close. And it was, in fact, the Florida State League in 2012. I was a broadcaster in the Florida State League in 2012. I did not remember the Garrison Lasseter name right off the top because when you hit 244 in a career that ends in three or four years, it's not really the most memorable thing, especially when your career is done in high A. But I was behind the microphone for one of his four career home runs, and it happened on May 17th, 2012. I don't know what that gets me. I, I guess what that and 50 cents will get me a cup of coffee at Waffle House. But it's amusing to me to think that just a completely unmemorable player would have the wherewithal to put together the kind of conspiracy to weave together the kind of conspiracy that Lasseter came up with in suing the Yankees for $34 million. Because the breakdown of this is amazing because he's not just suing them for the baseball part of things, but he's also suing them for a football career that he never had, a basketball career that he never had. He also went on to sue the Cincinnati Reds. And none of this has netted him any kind of financial windfall because he blew through his signing bonus of nearly $700,000, did put himself through law school, which sounds like the best thing that he's done, unless it gave him the idea to do this kind of stuff, in which case law school may have not been a good idea. I don't know what this all means, but I do know I've never seen anything like this. And I'm with you. I hope I never have to hear anything about this again because this is one of the silliest and most ridiculous things that I've seen, and it's just wasting a lot of people's time when you think about this actually being in a court of law. You actually answered one of the questions that I had because I was trying to figure out, like, what law firm would have even taken this case on? But it sounds like he probably represented himself since he went through law school. So that's good. I don't have a law firm that I can scratch off the list of guys never, ever to use if I'm ever in any kind of trouble or need to sue somebody. So uh, I guess that's good for everybody out there. But I just, it's baffling to me. He was a 27th round pick. 27th round picks sometimes don't even get to play a single season in the minor leagues, let alone, what, you said three or four that he had? So, I mean, again, it's a nice laugh for us on a podcast, but you really, in some ways, have to wonder if everything is just not right upstairs with the guy. And I hope whatever demons are bothering him, he can figure it out because this is not a great way to go through life, blaming everybody else for your failed professional baseball, football, basketball, whatever career. Look, man, if you went to law school, you're a lawyer, go be the best lawyer you can be. You can make a lot of money being a lawyer. Yeah, no, that's the truth. But uh, it's just interesting to see that this was what he chose as an outlet for the law school that I'm sure was not probably easy to get through. I I say that from having not done it and always having been intimidated by how much schooling it would take to become a lawyer. But as much as I love Better Call Saul, I don't even think Saul Goodman's going to win this case. I think it's ridiculous. (laughs) And, you know, I think that the most amusing thing that I found out about this, just by sitting down to record this show with you and just by looking at the game logs for Garrison Laster is the fact that not only did I call one of his four professional home runs, I called his final professional home run. May 17th, 2012, when Derek Jeter's diabolical plan finally finished off Garrison Lasseter and and launched us down this rabbit hole of legalese that I'm sure has made a lot of people get a good laugh over the past few days and, and not for the best of reasons. It's too bad. Do you still have the scorecard from that game? Because, I do. you know, that, that that could be valuable. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how. I don't know why. But maybe in some way there's some value to it because he's the guy who sued the Yankees and Derek Jeter. I don't know. But uh, that is kind of wild. Again, you never know the path that you're going to cross, especially when you're in the weeds like that in minor league baseball with all those bus trips and everything else. You have a great story. Now, what, eight years later, it all comes full circle. There it is. Unfortunately, I don't have the archive of that. Otherwise, I'd put it right in this podcast. But unfortunately, the laptop that I had all of those minor league games that I called, or at least the final season that I called, was stolen quite a few years ago. So I should sue the laptop maker for allowing the laptop to be stolen and for somebody to take away my Garrison Lasseter home run. So, you know, it all comes full circle, like you said. And sometimes that circle is not exactly a beautiful looking circle. I think this one might have uh, warped along the way, but 
Uh, regardless, Garrison Lassiter and his lawsuit against Derek Jeter, one of the silliest things I've heard of, and uh, hopefully the last of the ridiculous lawsuits we hear because minor league baseball, major league baseball, they got a lot of stuff to hammer out. This ain't one of them. Yeah, exactly. All right, Bill. Well, I appreciate it as always. It was a good time kind of walking through all of these different stories and even kind of finishing up on one that I don't know what the point of it will be exactly in the annals of history, but at least it was fun to chop it up, and I enjoy doing it with you each and every week. Yeah, it should be, uh, again, a fun week coming up. We'll find out more about what they're going to do with the Red Sox and Astros. Maybe, maybe we'll finally figure out where Josh Donaldson is going to end up playing. But uh, still lots to come, and again, four or five weeks away from from those first uh, catchers and pitchers reporting. Can't wait. Yep, looking forward to it. Thanks for your time as always, and we'll chat next week. Yep, have a great week. So that'll do it for this episode of From the Diamond. As always, want to thank Bill Rowland for joining in and want to thank you for listening. Make sure you subscribe to From the Diamond. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Keep those ratings and reviews coming. I really appreciate those. They help out the show immensely. And make sure you're connected on social media, on Twitter, at From the Diamond underscore I am at Grant McCauley, G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y. And you can find Bill Rowland on Twitter as well, at Bill Rowland. That's B-I-L-L-R-O-H-L-A-N-D. Over on Instagram, at From the Diamonds, where you can find the show. I am at Grant McCauley there as well. And over at FromTheDiamond.com, you'll find every episode, as well as that Braves positional preview series, a new group of players each week. I'll break them down, the bullpen, the rotation, the catchers, the infield, and the outfield. It'll be a five-part series. And that begins this weekend. Thanks again for spending your time talking some Braves and Major League Baseball with us. For Bill Rowland, I'm Grant McCauley. We will catch you next week on From the Diamond. Until then, so long, everyone.